1: good evening children of the night as i mentioned last week we are taking a little hiatus from our travels while i'm out of town so sit back and relax we should be back on the road again next week speaking of next week we've got something a little special cooked up for you something a while in the making at long last you'll have the pleasure of feasting your ears on the terrifying, bite-sized, fetid morsels of our first-ever Flash Fiction Contest. Yes, we've put together a full episode featuring the winner of the contest as well as three runners-up, and we're excited to share them with you, so make sure you tune in. You don't want to miss it. But don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you this week, either. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from Andrew L. Hodges. Andrew L. Hodges was born in Suffolk, England, but spent the majority of his life growing up in Virginia. Living on a farm, he showed a very early interest in both naturalism and fantasy stories. He has worked as a biology teacher a university professor, and a paint contractor, and served for several years as an emergency room hospital volunteer. He enjoys writing horror and draws on his love of biology and Appalachian scenery for his work. Children of the Night, join me for Andrew L. Hodge's Blue and White, a Tales to Terrify original.
0: Izzy was looking out of the window of the cottage when I told her. Winter was settling over the mountain, and the ice-glazed trees sparkled in the sun. The chill Izzy brought with her suited winter, this in contradiction to her long blonde hair which she kept tamed in a bun. She listened to my proposition while smoking a cigarette with a holder, her eyes staring out into the icy landscape beyond the back porch of her mother's summer cottage. She chewed over both the holder and my words as her eyes focused, yet saw nothing. Finally, she turned to me and I shuddered with the blizzard radiating from her gaze. So you really are going? I can't go back with you, I said. We came to get away and all we've done is squabble. There's no making either of us happy, so why try? She turned back to the window. Her face... As usual, bore a mannequin stare. Though almost thirty, she was still as gorgeous as she had been at twenty-two. I loved only what she could be, what she would look like if she were animated by love or passion. She had neither of those things, and thus remained an automaton. It's icy out there. Aren't you worried about driving down the mountain? I thought I'd leave in the morning. You can tell your father it's a trial separation if it makes things easier. But I don't know where we're going to go from here. I don't see any point. She blew a smoke ring in my face. You write one moderately successful novel and you're already threatening to walk out on me. Doesn't say a lot about our marriage, does it, Paul? I coughed but refused to respond. I had married her for financial support just as she had only married me to satisfy her parents. She had taken me in because I was a nobody, a reporter with dreams of being the next big thing on the bestseller list. It had never occurred to her that I might hit it big enough to no longer need her, though I still couldn't fathom why it should matter. She didn't love me, and I didn't love her. I had tried, but there was nothing to love. And nothing stared out at me now behind those twin diamonds on either side of her nose. When I had first met her, those blue eyes were my first impression. They were still the strongest, the only other impression being the coldness that she always carried with her. Yet those twin sapphires stared at me as their intensity sucked the warmth from my very body with their power. Can't I persuade you to stay? She asked, and there was a slight twinge of pleading to her voice. That frightened me, because Isabella Dorian didn't plead for anything. Yet there it was, that sense of needing which I saw only on those occasions where I became useful to her. I backed away. Those eyes were a vortex, and I couldn't always escape. Izzy, I think I need to leave soon. That storm's going to get worse, and— Do you really want me here, knowing what you know? I don't think it's healthy for us to go on pretending like we have been. She stared at me, contemplatively. I wondered again how much she knew. It was ridiculous to assume that I was so good at leading two lives that she didn't suspect. Secrets become ghosts, and the undead voices moan. Then she released a dismissive wave of her hand. I can't stop you, Paul. You get something into your head and off you go. You never really could stay focused on anything. Maybe that's why your writing is so erratic. I bit my tongue. She had never yet finished a single novel that I had ever penned. Anyway, she said, turning back to the window, you'll be back. It's not as if you have anything besides me. I expect to see you back in a month with that stupid smile on your face. Izzy, and I will forgive you, she said with a sigh. When you come crawling in, you can keep that in mind. Unlike you, I have my dignity. I stood for a while, wondering if she wanted to take another stab at me. But she had apparently said her piece, and as usual, hers was the last word. She was so unyielding, and I had known for the last two years that nothing could ever change between us. My life now was a steel vault into which nothing new could ever enter. My only hope now was to claw my way out. I left the house with nothing but my wallet, my car keys, and the clothes on my back. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision, but I knew that everything I took would only weigh me down. Stepping through the door admitted me to the porch, which was now the vestibule to a world of cold and encroaching darkness. A chill wind was blowing, and the uniform gray haze overhead was promising snow soon. We'd come in separate vehicles with me and the Volvo and her in that Porsche that had been an anniversary gift from her family. I made my way to the car and slid inside. Already I could see flakes drifting out of the sky. Once I had both the engine and heat going, I started to back out and U-turn in the driveway. I expected to see Izzy watching me from a window, but she wasn't there. We had spent our last two anniversaries here, and them, like us was without life or charm. I started down the driveway, then turned down onto the gravel road that intersected with the parkway. Trees glazed with ice sprouted on either side of me, their bodies naked and skeletal. I thought about how beautiful the place must be in spring, though we had never come when the orchids bloomed. Izzy insisted we spend the warm months in France. As I drove into the dark hollow, I tried not to think about the consequences of what I was doing. I knew they would come, but my brain resisted a lecturing from my conscience. As I left the mountain pass behind and began my trip through the dark valley that skirted the mountain chains, the sky opened like a giant black canvas. It looked like a black void into which I was doomed to be cast. Yet I pressed forward knowing that I could not turn back from what I'd set into motion. The only outpost for about twenty miles was a small town in the hollow, which served as an entry point to the main highway. I'd only been driving for about an hour, but I knew I'd have to stop for gas and coffee. Izzy would probably blow through on her next trip down to ask questions about my passage, but I accepted this risk. She already knew I was leaving her and probably suspected why. The diner was nondescript, just faux wood and polymer. I had a slice of pie from one of the pastries on display by the counter and a cup of hot coffee. Both, like the diner, had little to no taste. The middle-aged waitress knew me by sight and gave me a polite smile. Traveling late, huh? Yep. Your wife up in the mountain? Yep, I got a family emergency to deal with. She's decided to stay behind and get some rest. Oh, hope it ain't serious. No, but thank you. As I picked at my pie and listened to the corner TV, I found my mind growing hazy. The caffeine was waking my brain up, but it wasn't bringing me back to Earth. On the contrary, everything grew fuzzy as if I were living in a dream. I had to remind myself that these things had been set into motion a long time ago. This was simply the climax. Including our dating life, I had spent five years in this prison tied to that ice sculpture of a wife. She was beautiful, and for that, she was untouchable. Nothing, including love, could ever soil her. And then I looked out the window and saw her. The neon open sign in the grimy window flickered, and by its bloody light, I saw her in the parking lot. She stood about ten feet from me, her figure erect, her arms dangling at her sides. She was dressed all in black, the red throwing her into crimson silhouette against the dark sky. Her face was staring at me on the other side of the window, her eyes flashing like magnifier. Their fury passed through the pain and into me with a blast of cold wind. And then, she was gone. My first impression was that I had imagined her presence. A hallucination. Nothing more. I was stressed, my mind working on adrenaline, caffeine, plus two days without sleep. I had been planning this for so long, and now that I was going through with it, I found myself choking. Yet just as I began to register the phantasmal nature of my vision, something within me began to burgeon forth. I would not be frightened away. I was pressing forward, no matter what. I finished my coffee, paid my bill, and left the diner promptly. I followed the winding road through the darkness, trying to keep my eyes focused on the little puddle of illumination in front of me created by my headlights. I blasted my jazz CDs, hoping that the urban cacophony would keep me awake. Night roads are always lonely, but the highways of West Virginia are especially bad. Gas stations are scarce, and except for transport trucks, fellow travelers are scant. I tried my best to keep my mind occupied, but those flashing eyes came back to me again and again. I found my own eyes drifting from the road and gazing into the rearview mirror. I kept looking into the blackness behind me, waiting for something to materialize there. Nothing ever did. After two hours, I took an exit and stopped for gas. I paid cash and... While I pumped, I made a phone call on my cell. After a few seconds that extended into eternity, the phone was answered. Paul? Hi. Paul, why are you calling? It's over, Beth. I'm leaving her. A pause and then a sigh. What? Listen, I said, my voice angry and defensive. I'm not wasting any more of my life in this this farce. You and I both know what we want, and there's no reason we can't have it. I don't love Izzy. She doesn't love me, and that's that. I'll do it quietly, of course, but I'm getting a divorce. But, Paul, what about the money? You said I have enough now, and I'll have even more later. My latest novel is already going gangbusters, and I've got a manuscript that I can guarantee is a winner. But, Paul... I'll have enough to take care of you and Mikey. You can leave Charleston and we can go, go anywhere, anywhere you want. I found myself smiling at the thought of all of this. Another sigh and this time her exacerbation was palpable. Paul, don't you think this is a little sudden? But Beth, trust me, I'm ready now. I don't care about the money anymore. Even if I go broke in the divorce, it will still be worth it just to be free. I can move in with you and Mikey and... Paul, I know you love Mikey and he loves you, but you told me yourself. Her family could to hell with them. Look, I can be in Charleston in about an hour or so. Can you meet me? No, Paul, she said firmly. It's after midnight and Mike is asleep. I can't just drop everything and... Well, well, what about tomorrow? I can get a hotel close to the diner. There's a Hilton, I think. You can meet me there after work. We can talk about this. Paul, I think we need to. You don't sound well. I've never been happier, Beth. Listen, why don't you? I stopped and felt my bowels roil. There she was again, at the far end of the lot. There was no car, just her. She stood as she had before, tall and upright, with her arms at her sides, those eyes directed towards me. Her pale face showed no expression, but was radiating icy pulsations that made me shudder. As we locked gazes, Beth called to me from the phone. Paul, Paul, are you there? Again, like smoke in the wind? The phantasm simply vanished. I could not take my eyes away from the spot where she had been and it took me several moments to find my voice again. I have to go, Beth. I'll call you. I promptly hung up, still watching that empty patch of light several yards away. It was extremely cold now and my shoulders had started to shake without me noticing it. I climbed back into the car and, turned on the engine, letting the whispers of the heater wash over me. I sat for a while, trying to understand what I had seen. Was Izzy following me? There had been no vehicle with her, and despite my constant checking, I'd seen no one following me on the road. If she was following me, how had she gotten here? I couldn't even be sure, looking back, that I had seen her. It could have just as easily been a daydream. My mind had wandered. I had seen the presence that most bothered me now, and it was such a simple and elegant explanation that it had to be true. At the very least, I observed that the road had now become more populous. I began to see more cars and gas stations, along with a steady stream of green road signs. Bleary lights illuminated a maze of mean streets constructed from damp brickwork and electric chaos. Charleston had never been beautiful, even during the coal boom, but it was where the love of my life now waited for me. Beth was as different from Izzy as good from evil, and though she had been terse on the phone, I knew she'd be willing to start my life again. I took an exit and pulled off the main highway onto a street lined with dilapidated buildings. It was about three in the morning, and all the shop windows were dark. The sidewalks were deserted, and despite my return to civilization, I still felt terribly alone. I tried to focus on Beth's smiling face and what her embrace would feel like when we met the next day. It would be difficult at first, I knew, but we could ride anything out together. She had helped me so much over the last year to deal with the blatant realities of my failing marriage and crumbling life. What had started as a friendship, sparked over a casual visit to the restaurant where she worked, had blossomed like a rose in the snow. It had started flurrying by the time I got to the Hilton. Parking my car and stepping out, I found myself being rained on by a downpour of white flakes. A raw wind raked over my face as I made my way to the front entrance, pulling my overcoat tightly around myself. The rocky cliff sides that overlooked the city like stony sentinels seemed to echo and enhance the cold zephyrs that swept through the valley. Passing through the automatic door was like taking a breath, my body engulfed in comforting warmth. I wondered how much it was snowing back at the cottage and whether Izzy had built a fire for herself to fight the chill. I purchased a room for the night from a sleepy-eyed clerk and then rode the elevator up. The room was a good one, and my window faced one of the staccato cliff sides. They cut into the sky overhead, slicing into the black void like a zigzagging gash. I took some time to contemplate the view, observing the lights and the glistening towers of glass in the distance. It was good to be in the city alone again and away from Izzy. I took a hot shower, and it helped me relax. I had a whole day to myself, and right now I had sleep to catch up on. As I was putting on my pajamas and preparing for sleep, my telephone began to ring. This caught me off guard. Only Beth had any idea where I was, but how could she know my room number? I answered it, expected to hear some complaints from the front desk. So, this is how you want it to end, Paul. I felt a blanket of ice fall over me. It was as if all warmth, all joy, all humanity was sucked out of the room and left me stranded in a cave under a glacier. You've got gumption. I'll give you that, Izzy's voice hissed into my ear. But you really have the guts to see this through. I told you it's over, I said. I tried to sound adamant, but my voice cracked. I'll call you when I'm settled. Your father can file the divorce papers if he likes. Why wait? I can serve them to you in person. I'm downstairs right now. My whole body twinged and a shudder ran its way up and down my spine. It was impossible. There was no way she could be here. And yet that cold blown from the phone and filling the room with its frosty edge, that cold was distinctly hers. I had felt it for more than three years now, and I knew its texture and flavor all too well. I slammed the phone down and started to get dressed. I geared myself up for an encounter on the elevator ride down, only to find the TV room and breakfast nook devoid of life. Only the sleepy eyed clerk stood there, watching me curiously through half lids. I must have looked strange stalking around the lobby and GLANCING OUT OF WINDOWS, FINALLY I HAD NO CHOICE BUT TO GO UP TO HIM. EXCUSE ME. YES, SIR. CAN I HELP YOU? HAS ANYONE COME THROUGH HERE OTHER THAN ME? NO, SIR. YOU'RE THE LAST GUEST TO COME IN. NOT A WOMAN? IN BLACK, WITH BLOND HAIR AND BLUE EYES? THE OLD MAN SLOWLY SHOOK HIS HEAD, eyeing ME AS IF I WERE AN ESCAPED LUNATIC. NO, SIR. NOBODY. Well, thank you. Back upstairs, I got no sleep. I kept thinking about Izzy, about our lives together, about the misery she had caused me. We had tried so hard to have fun in our dreary relationship. We went horseback riding, spelunking, yachting, anything that stank of money and bourgeoisie fanaticism. Yet no matter what I did with her, Izzy never thought. She could never bring herself to love. After tossing and turning, I got out of bed and went to the window, watching the snowfall. The flurries were getting pernicious and turning into a whipping blizzard. I figured that the cottage was probably now buried under ice. All I could do was stare at the fallen snow, illuminated by the street lamps, and repeat a single prayer. I'm not going back. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. When dawn finally came, I decided to go out and get some breakfast. The cold was too pervasive, and I needed a change of scenery. I put on two layers of clothing and my overcoat before heading downstairs to my car. Outside, the white flakes were powdering the parking lot looking beautiful and thick in the flushing lights of the hilt. I got in my vehicle and started down the road, just wanting to go somewhere and be around people again. It was strange since I had once savored my solitude, a trait that Izzy had always held against me. But here I was, scanning the streets for any place where there might be other human souls. Driving along the street, I saw a vertical neon sign hanging parallel to a brick two-story building of some incredible age. The ground floor had been converted into an all-night bakery and deli, which seemed to be family-owned. Such places, rare as they are in the present age, have always held a fascination for me, so I decided to pull in. I parked along the sidewalk and climbed out the Cold wind greeting me as I locked the door. Flakes were falling fast now in swirling, slanting trajectories. It was about five o'clock now, and the rising sun was brightening the sky. I knew it would be a hazy sort of day, and the dampness of the morning was giving away only to more cold, wet winds. Stepping onto the sidewalk, I found myself drawn like a moth into the lighted interior of the little restaurant. It was both empty and very homely. The carpeting, floral tablecloths, and phalanx of landscape paintings made it feel more like some grandmother's living room than an eatery. I was waited on by a plump elderly woman. Her son and daughter-in-law apparently ran it during the day, who served me up a southern breakfast of biscuits and gravy with a steaming hot coffee. She brought me the paper when it arrived, and I scanned the articles to occupy my mind. I don't recall how I saw her. Perhaps I'd put the paper down to ponder an article, but my eyes were drawn to the window. But even as I turned my head, I knew I would see her there. Her face wasn't pressed to the glass, but it was close enough for me to see her face clearly. She was dressed, as she had been, in black, and her blue eyes seemed to glow from her pale face. Izzy was looking at me with that same blank expression, contrasted with those intense blue eyes. Though she made no gesture, nor did she even raise either of her hands, she seemed to be trying to communicate something to me. It wasn't simply anger as I would have expected, but something else. I watched her, and she returned the sentiment, apparently pondering me like an animal in the zoo. Yet there was a meaning in her intensity, a sense of need that I could not quite piece together. I got up and ran outside, ignoring the string of questions called out to me by the hostess. I shouldered my way through the door and into the snowy dawn twilight. She had not vanished, but still stood by the window, her blue eyes glaring at me. It's over, I called out to her. Do you understand? I'm not coming back. Her face smiled though it never came within a mile of her eyes. Don't you understand, Paul? It's too late for that. It's too late for everything. I reached out to touch her and confirm whether she was real. My hand closed around something like a cold mist, and then I was swatting at the air. Flakes were piling up on my shoulder as I grasped at empty space. I paid for my breakfast and then drove back to the hotel. I wasn't looking forward to being back in that cold room and decided to call Beth when I got back. It was about 7.30 when I returned to the room and decided to quickly ring her up. She'd be leaving for work soon and I probably wouldn't be able to get a hold of her until that evening. She ended up answering the phone on the sixth ring, sounding exacerbated. Listen, Paul, we need to talk. I don't think this is a good idea. She's following me, Beth. A pause on the line and then, who? Is he? I've seen her, but I'm not going back. Not ever. Listen, I want to meet you tonight. Paul, I haven't talked to Michael. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, I'll get my money and we'll go away for a while. She's not going to intimidate us. Paul, are you, are you sure? Look, don't worry. I'll take you both out to dinner tonight, and we'll talk about it. We'll go to that Italian place we went to the last time I was in town. Paul, you said it yourself. She's very unstable. I mean, what if she's a paper tiger? Besides, it's time you and I started living our own lives like we always talked about doing. We can get out of Charleston and go somewhere on the southeast coast. Myrtle Beach, maybe. Paul, look, don't shoot me down just yet, Beth. Paul, what if you can't? That response ran through me like the blade of a knife. Beth, trust me, we will. We'll find a way. I have to protect Michael. If that bitch tries something with me, she won't. Listen, I'll call you a five, okay? We'll finalize our plans. All right, Paul, but be careful. I didn't know what to do after she hung up. A part of me wanted to settle in and enjoy a bit of TV, but I knew there'd be no rest for me. The room was still so cold, and I was still shaken by my hallucinations. Alone in that room, I convinced myself thoroughly that it was nothing but a trick of the mind. She couldn't have been there. Couldn't have just materialized and vanished like that. Plus, Izzy never wore black preferring whites and blues to complement her hair and eyes. Pondering this, she came to me clearly, as she had been on our honeymoon. We had gone to Tahiti, a trip paid for by her exuberant father. I saw her in my mind's eye, standing in the sand in a conservative one-piece and straw hat, a bucket full of shells in one hand, even on a sandy shore. She seemed cold and distant. I paced the room, but I always ended up back at the window to watch the snow fall. After a while, I resolved to call the cottage. That was the only way I could know for sure. If she answered the call, then it would prove that it was all just a trick in my brain. And if she were there, she would answer. She'd even be expecting me. I could hear her voice in that very moment, her tongue clicking, her sarcastic tone chiding me at inviting me back. Yet at that moment, I was willing to endure her sardonic tongue if only to have the matter settled. I dialed the phone and sat on the bed while waiting for an answer. But none came. It went to voicemail. I hung up, my head reeling, I started rationalizing immediately. Maybe she was in the shower or she went into town or she'd gone home. It was just phantasms that were following me, not a creature of flesh and blood. I decided to try to wait it out in the hotel room, believing that at least here I I had a modicum of safety. I was fine for the first hour and then the phone call started. I ignored the first, sensing what it was. Then about ten minutes later, the shrill ring sounded again. I answered, just to shut the bloody thing up. Hello? You're going to have to face this, Paul. I'm not facing anything. It's over, is he? You really should come back. You don't understand just how over it is. Is that a threat? If your father wants to drag me into court, you can tell him he's welcome to try. Come back, Paul. You really don't understand what you've done. Screw you, Izzy! I slammed the receiver down. I lay on my bed and tried to engross myself in some dramas on TV. The harder I tried to ignore my situation, the more I found myself pondering what to do next. I was struck by a sense of unreality again that I was living in some dream and might wake up at any moment. Was I really throwing this marriage away? I couldn't imagine trying to raise children with her, and the lack of passion she exhibited towards me made it unlikely that there would ever be any pregnancy on her part. I contrasted that with Beth's embrace and how Mikey had thrown his arms around me when I would visited the week of Christmas. I was already trapped in a double life, and I couldn't bear to leave it behind. Going back to Izzy had been more painful each month, just like going back to the Arctic after a vacation in Hawaii. I would sneak off to Charleston and spend a few days in Beth's warmth and then return to the frigidity that was my marriage bed. I simply couldn't leave Beth behind any longer. We had to be together, even if it meant weathering whatever storm Izzy threw our way. When the phone rang again, I was irate. I jerked it up and shouted, "'Just stop it, Izzy!' "'Paul?' My heart stopped. I was almost befuddled to hear Beth's voice. "'Oh, oh God, Beth, I'm sorry. I've seen her again. She—' "'I'm on my lunch break, and I don't have much time. Listen, Paul, we need to call this all.' "'What?' "'Paul, you're not well.' You're acting Beth, Beth, please. I've got to see you. I love you, Paul, but something's wrong with you. She's contaminated you somehow. Ever since the beginning, you've had this aura to you, as if she's infected you somehow. Beth. Listen, I'm not pushing you away, but if you are leaving her, you need to take some time to yourself. Clear your head. I don't want to see you like this. But Beth, and I don't want Mikey to either. I'm proud of you for doing this, but we really shouldn't rush into things. You need to recuperate from what she's done to you. I'll talk to you on the phone if you want, but I think you need to get away for a while before we talk about reconvening. Beth, I can't face this without you. I just can't. Yes, yes you can. It'll be all right. Just leave Charleston. Go stay with your family on the coast. Your mother, of all people, will understand, but we really can't go on with you like this. You've got to get away from her. But I am away from her. I. But you're jonesing, Paul. My ex was an addict, remember? I know the symptoms. That's why you're seeing her everywhere. You're just hoping that she's going to come and get you, to save you. Beth, no. Please, no. Don't, don't say that. Call me tonight, Paul. I mean that. And tomorrow, too. But I can't meet you. You need to get your head straight. I was on the verge of tears. I needed her so badly, and I had put so much faith in her embrace tonight that rejection felt like having the gates of heaven shut in my face. Just call me tonight. Goodbye, Paul. She hung up. I slumped down under my bed. My mind was blank for a good long while. I sat in that strangely cold room, shivering and wondering what I should do. It took several minutes before I finally came back to myself and made up my mind. I had to go back. I had to end things once and for all. Beth was right. I had acted too quickly. Maybe Izzy was at the cottage and maybe not, but it seemed she intended for me to meet her there. I threw on my overcoat and went downstairs to settle things at the front desk. Within half an hour, I was back in my car, pulling out of the parking lot. Snow spit down in big gobs, but I didn't care. I had to get back. Passing out of Charleston, I saw that the snow was now accumulating. The bridge was frosted over, and the rocky cliff sides were now slick with ice. I calculated that there would be more on the mountainside, but I could only hope that I would get there before it became impassable. I blasted my CDs and drove as fast as I dared across the icy road. There were moments where that trip seemed to go on forever. Time lost all meaning while I wrestled with the steering wheel on those curving roads, trying to keep my tires from sliding. And all the while, it snowed. The world had become a white haze, the sky a uniform fog, while the roads were peppered with flakes. The road barriers and embankments were soon covered, as were the trees and cliff sides. Watching this slow encroachment of white only served as a reminder that the cottage might be inaccessible. I might have to stay the night in the town at the foot of the mountain until the roads were cleared but this did not deter me. If Izzy were there, she would be stuck and waiting for me when I got there. And if not, there was no way she could sneak back in. I would know for sure if she were following me soon. And I thought I saw her several times during that trip. It was always at a distance, a dark shadow cut against the white snowdrifts. She was always watching me, her blue eyes like stars against the monochrome background. I grit my teeth and pressed on, swearing up and down that I would catch her. I would know the truth. If she wanted to stalk me across the whole state, let her. Either way, our confrontation at the cottage would be the final one. I finally turned off the highway and started down a woody road to that desolate hollow in its dreary little town. The trees were now thoroughly covered in snow, as was the roadside, and it was still coming down. The little town was thoroughly coated. They had snowplows going already, but the roads were otherwise deserted. I thought of stopping, but the roadsides were blocked off by troughs of piled ice. I knew if I paused, the snow would trap me, and I'd have to be here until it melted. No. I wouldn't give her that much room. I simply had to be back at the cottage. There was no way around it. I started up the mountain road with very little trouble, but I started running into difficulties almost immediately. No one had plowed it, and the ice made my tires spin and twist. Soon I found myself unable to move forward. The tires kicked and sped, but the car gained no momentum. Finally... I turned it off and got out. I knew what I was doing was incredibly foolish, but I just couldn't let myself give up. If I couldn't get up the mountain, neither could she, nor could she get down. My prediction was correct in that wherever she was, she was stuck and could only get out through me. I left the car and started walking. Moving through calf-deep snowdrifts, I had on my boots and overcoat, but it was still so cold and wet, and the snow kept coming. The wind whipped around me, coming down the craggy cliffs and bringing with it a chill of cold stone and gray sky overhead. The only sound I heard was the whistle of the wind and the crunch of my booted feet as I walked through the icy snow. I tried to keep my mind focused on the cottage to keep plowing ahead despite my discomfort. At first, I shuddered, but I gradually acclimated enough to keep the cold out of my mind. I estimated it to be about five miles up to the cottage, and though I knew what I was doing was dangerous, I pressed on. At that point, I was beyond even considering the possibility of turning back. I had to know. I ended up losing two toes because of that trip. By the time I was mounting the porch of the cottage, I could feel myself warming with the beginnings of hypothermia. Her car was still out front, piled under the snow, but I did not accept this evidence as total. I had to go inside to see her there staring at me with those judging electric blue eyes. I had my keys with me, and with clumsy fingers I managed to turn the lock and push the door open. The inside of the cottage was like a refrigerator, warmer than the outside, but only moderately. There was still that chill in the air, and a draft had built up within that box-like interior. As I stepped into the house, I immediately saw that the fire in the fireplace was out. Even the embers didn't glow. The hearth was full of black and white ash. The lights were on, but there was no sound of her moving about within. The car was out front, so she still must be here. Moving farther in, I started to call her name when... When I saw her, she lay on the couch. And at first, I thought she was napping. But no. Her eyes were open, staring at me, accusing. Her face was also blue, and her lips were colorless. Her hair formed a pool beneath her head in a halo that spread across the couch cushion. Still dressed in her white dress from that morning, she looked almost angelic. She stared at me, but she neither saw nor moved. Her body hadn't taken on the final stage of its resemblance to a statue or a doll. As I leaned closer, I saw the marks across her throat. The indentations were my hands. It closed around her jugular. I sat down on the couch beside her and let the cold engulf me.
1: That was Andrew L. Hodges' Blue and White, is read by Scott Fulps. Scott Fulps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell, for now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we stain your soul with more Tales to Terrify.